Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Bauckham, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Man, fake fruit. <clears throat> I love this, this idea. Let me, let me tell you how it came to me, though. So I was reading Scripture on a cold, I believe, January morning. I, I remember this because I, I recognized that my feet were cold. Now, my feet don't often get cold. I mean, I walk barefoot all the time. <clears throat> but this was a really cold day. And I was sitting in a, a back little room that we have that can be kind of chilly and reading through Paul's letter to the Galatians, to the church at Galatia. And I'd read this scripture many, many times. In fact, I translated the book of Galatians in seminary. It was one I knew really well. That's just where my personal Bible reading happened to take me, my plan happened to take me on, on that day. You know, I, I try to read devotionally, formationally, I do, of course, study Scripture a lot to preach and to teach, but there's a problem with being a pastor like being in any other profession, and, and that is that after a while, what's professional becomes professional. You know, it, it's not personally significant or meaningful anymore. I learned a long time ago that I needed times in my life that I just, I just simply read, not thinking about how something would preach or how it would teach or how it would carry with you or, or anything of the sort, and, and that's what I was doing. But I have to tell you the truth and say that, that that's impossible to completely separate. So almost everything that I preach and teach comes out of my personal Scripture reading. The, the Bible comes alive, the Word of God comes alive again and again and again in the hands of God's people because the Holy Spirit is always speaking into the moment. It may be ancient, but, it, but it's current, it's real, and in this moment, we sat in a time in our culture where I was seeing people left and right, virtue signal, just do all sorts of things that were cheap and easy to try to prove to others who they were. And so I sat there and, and read the Scripture in a different context than I had before. And I ran into sort of this key verse that all of you know, and, and some of you from your childhoods could sing, I expect. And and it, and it read, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I chuckled to myself, and it occurred to me that a lot of what I was seeing and hearing around me in Christian culture was fake fruit. It's not this stuff, not the real deal, not the stuff that the Spirit does in and through us, but, but little things that we could say and control, things that we could sort of push out as a, a mimic of the real thing, a, a fake of the real thing. I laughed at thinking about it. Like Chris, who preached last week, when I was a kid, I had a grandmother that had a big bowl of fake fruit in her house. I always wondered what that was worth. Who would want such a thing when the real thing actually exists? And even now, I, I see it all over the place and just laugh when I think about it. No nutritional value, no taste. Frankly, I can even tell what it looks like, but it looks good on the outside. It just has no intrinsic value. So looking good is just not good enough. Fake fruit. <laughs> thought it was funny. Now, honestly, at the time, I thought this has to be preached. And so, when Chris and I gathered together at the retreat center in the spring, and the retreat center will feature in several of my narratives today, <clears throat> when we sat there and talked about it, I said to Chris, I have this idea. It's grounded in 
Galatians chapter 5. And this idea is fake fruit. It's how we fake it in order to make it. It's how we, we try to present something that's not the real deal and how Christians are looking for markers of faith that, that aren't real and they're expressing markers of faith that just aren't genuine. And, and to be truthful, and Chris will back me up on this, he wasn't so sure he was pacing at the time as I was sitting there, and he said, I don't know, dude. I'm not sure that'll preach. I said, man, come on. You've got to be kidding. This will preach. But last week, after he brilliantly introduced this sermon series while Debbie and I were leading a marriage retreat, he came back and said, man, that was awesome. It was powerful. That idea really did come alive. So apparently, your conversation with him and how you're engaging with this, it hits you the same way it does me. Yes you say to yourself, there's a lot of fraud out there, a lot of dishonesty, a lot of fake fruit when the real thing truly is available. A couple of other things that struck me about this passage too. Some of them I'd seen before and some of them I was seeing for the first time. I almost never read a passage of Scripture that something new does not occur to me. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. On this occasion, I happened to notice knowing the Greek how Paul phrased this, first of all, he talks about the works of the flesh. He doesn't enumerate all of them. He just offers uh, several examples, a bunch of examples, and then he says, and such is this, or etc. in essence. The works are plural. There are lots of things that we do. Whenever we're working in our own power, it can never come of good, whereas Working in God's power, when the Spirit is moving through us, it can never be for bad. And I recognize this. I know this. I, I know myself. I, I realize when I'm performing for an audience instead of, instead of for my God, my Heavenly Father. But I noticed that the fruit of the Spirit was singular, though lots of words were used to describe it. But the fruit of the Spirit, singular, Paul says, not are, but is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against these things. And I started to ponder the meaning of many words to describe one thing that is so complex, it's hard really in any way, shape, or form to talk about. So as I thought about this and kept pondering in my mind, I went with our elders at the end of the summer, just before fall, to an elder retreat. And it happened to be once again at our retreat center. And if you know where that is, it's near Winchester, north of Winchester. And so it's in apple country. I mean, if any place in the country other than maybe in Seattle or somewhere qualifies as apple country, that's it. I mean, there's so much apple produced there. It's amazing. And now so many varieties. Do you remember when we were kids, if you're my age or older, I mean, I think there were like two main apples, right? There was Red Delicious and there was Granny Smith. That was kind of what, if you were exotic and you lived in the mountains like I did, you grew up in the mountains, then you had stamen apples. And we thought that was really something right, right there. But now all of these varieties, I think Cosmic Crisp is the latest one and it's supposedly sweeping the country. So on the way back from this, this retreat with the elders, Chris, I was riding with Chris again, my co-pastor, and as we were talking, we decided to stop by the Virginia Farm Market. How many of you have been there before? I bet many of you have, because it's right on the road, coming in from the retreat center, Route 522. We pulled in there, and I went in, and I was bewildered by all these apples. 
Now, usually when I'm bewildered, I call Debbie and ask her what I should do. Do you guys do this too? You know, I'm at the store. She said, buy this, and there's like 10 varieties of it or whatever. And I call, which one did you want? I asked. But on this occasion, you know, I just thought, well, I'll just pick something that looks good to me. And there, there in, in, in a basket off to the side was this, was this type of apple that was called Cosmic Crisp. It wasn't too red, and it wasn't too green, and I just thought it looked good, plain and simple. And so I didn't taste it. I just bought a bag of these apples. We drove home and I got into the house. I hadn't tried one yet myself. And I I pulled one out and I handed it to Debbie and immediately she took a bite of it. And she said, this may well be the best apple I've ever had in my life. I reached into the bag and pulled out a cosmic crisp. uh, I'm sorry. uh, 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 What is it called? Crimson crisp. A crimson crisp apple. A lot of varieties a crimson crisp apple, and I took a bite. I said, I agree. This is beyond a doubt the best apple I've ever had. I'm not kidding. In my li- and I've had a lot of apples in my life. Now, maybe this is just subjective. It's just the Bauckhams that have a particular set of taste buds. Then Bob Herb, he's probably in the room right now. I can't see anything with these lights. But Bob Herb comes to our house one day to bring some squash, as he calls it. And when he brings this squash from his garden, Debbie offers him an apple. And he takes the apple. I'm not there. This is all reported to me. But he eats this apple in her presence, and he professes to her, this may well be the best apple I've ever had. I said, we must be right. On the way back to the retreat center for last week's marriage retreat, we decide, and by the way, it was awesome, and we decide we're going to get a big bag of these apples for our brothers and sisters who are coming to join us there. We buy a lot of them because we figure whatever they don't eat, we can take home with us and we can eat later. No such luck. Every last one of them was consumed by the time that we left. Every last one. And not only that, but people who were eating them were saying, this is the best apple I've ever had in my life. Now, I will tell you the honest truth. These apples were totally consumed in no small part because of the participation in that retreat of Brandon Nuss. Every time I went by Brandon, he was eating some of these apples, either dipped in caramel or just plain. I don't know how many apples he ate, but it's a lot. And so, well, Brandon, you're here, so... Come up here for a second and help me with something, would you? So this is, this is my brother, Brandon. Would you give him a hand, please? Brandon and Jennifer were on our retreat. And Brandon, do I lie or did you eat a lot of these apples? Yeah, he, says he, ate, he, ate, he said he ate a lot. That's basically what we said. So, you know, I love you, man. And uh, I, I just thought I'd, I'd share with you today. That's, that's a... That's, that's, a, that's a crimson crisp apple right there, okay? Well, I tell you what, do me a favor, if you would, and right here in our presence, take a big bite of that apple, and then I, I'm going to ask you, so let me ask you to be thinking about this as you eat it. I'm going to ask you to describe that apple to me and, and, to, and to our friends. Can you do that? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Take, take a bite. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to give you a minute to clear your mouth because my mama said you should never talk with your mouth full. So um, I'm going to give you a second here. When I, when I see that you stop chewing, we're going to start talking. Not, don't take another bite yet. <laughs> you get to take it with you. You can have the rest of it. All right. So can you describe that apple to me? I can try. Okay, go ahead. It's like, oh, 
when you bite it, it's crisp, like like this morning's crisp. So like it's super crisp. So it's and like a fall morning. It's like a fall morning. And then after you chew it for a little bit, it dissolves and it's just juicy all over. Okay, the wait, 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 wait a second now. You got, you got too much going on here. So first you told me it was crisp. Mm-hmm. I understood that. Mm-hmm. But then you said it was soft and juicy. Yes. How can it be both? It's blessed. Okay, all right. All right, so is that all or you got more? No, it's, uh, it's like. Honey sweet, super sweet, and then at the oh, end. Oh, it's honey sweet. It's super sweet. Yeah, super sweet. So that's what it tastes like. But then, like, at the end of it, it's the tart that, like, grabs your jaw. You know, it makes you want to close it a little bit. Mmm. So wait a second now. It's sweet. Yep. And it's tart? Yes. At the same time? Absolutely. Uh, okay. You keep going. Um, it's like a mixture. When you were a kid, you know that the red ones are going to be sweet. Right, right. The gold ones are going to be honey. Right, like the green ones. Right. So it's like red, gold, green all at once. What do you think? Wait, 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 wait. It's red, gold, green. Red, gold, green. That's not a color, dude. It tastes like a color. Okay, it tastes like a color. All right. Anything else you'd offer about this apple? It's just just like fall. It's a glorious bite. It's like fall. Much more than a pumpkin spice latte. Yeah, yeah, way way better than that. Okay, so that... That sounds pretty good. Is everybody out there wishing they'd gotten to do this today? Okay, guard that with your life. You may not make it back. Okay, all right, thank you. Thank you, brother, for your help. Thanks so much. Now, look, it's nothing but an apple, right? And if I had you come up here blindfolded, and don't you wish I did have you come up here to do that? If I had you come up blindfolded and I, I had you take a bite of that and I said, what do you taste? What would you say? An apple. An apple. You wouldn't use any of those words that Brandon just used because what makes a great apple delicious is its complexity. You know, it has to be crisp, but it can't be so hard you can't eat it. And it has to be juicy, but it can't be so juicy that there's no texture, and it's got to be sweet. But frankly, some apples for me are way too sweet, and I'm not looking for a bowl of sugar. If I want that, I'll get processed food. The real thing doesn't taste like that. There's a combination of sweet and tart. There's all these words you would need to describe one thing, and that one thing is an apple. And that's how it is with the fruit of the Spirit. The one fruit of the one Spirit means when the Spirit is working inside of us, all these amazing things happen, things we couldn't produce of our own volition, things we could neither choose nor by our effort cause to happen. All these things start to come through our lives. They, they come out of our pores, as you will. And so Paul uses all these words these powerful, powerful Greek words that you read in English. He uses all these words just to describe this one very complex thing. When the Spirit is working, we know that these things are happening. Now, this is vital because you don't get to pick and choose. You can't, for example, say, well, honestly, I'm a pretty loving guy, but I have no patience. doesn't work that way. That means whatever you're doing that you call love is something that you're working hard to produce, and the lagging note of patience is because you can't produce that in your own life. You're waiting for the Spirit. The Spirit needs to move. You might say, I'm kind of kind, but I'm not very gentle. No, that's impossible. 
If the Spirit is moving in your life, all of these words will be necessary to describe what it tastes like, what it feels like, both your experience of it and the experience that others have of you. And I started to think of the fruit of the Spirit in sort of a new way. Now, the problem is, of course, that looking good is just not good enough. And this is precisely what Paul was talking about in the book of Galatians. Chris did a great job of introducing this last Sunday. Chris talked about virtue signaling, which is what had occurred to me. And virtue signaling has a specific meaning. It's frankly not a very old term. But in our context, I'd like to speak of virtue signaling or Christian virtue signaling, if you will, as worldly manifestations that are given as evidence of Christian faith. The problem being that whenever we display fake fruit, there's no room for the real thing. The problem being that whenever we're faking it, it's impossible for the Spirit to do what the Spirit wants to do in us. So these manifestations are dangerous to us. We become people who are practicing a works faith, a faith of what we do instead of who we are at our core, instead of how God is shaping us at the center of our being. Now, I need to tell you that this is part of a much broader science that really is quite interesting. While virtue signaling is a term that dates only back to about 2015 or so, the science, the social science of signaling or of social signaling is quite broad. This has been studied for years, and all of us rely on signals every single day. Signals are the things we give off or we receive that teach or tell us whether another person is valid, whether they can be trusted or not, whether we can afford to put our faith in them in any way, shape, or form. So we do this on a regular basis. And social scientists say there are two types of these signals. One of them is what they call a common signal. I'm also going to call it a cheap signal. And the other is an expensive signal or a signal of sacrifice. The difference being that one is very easily faked. It's very easy to control. It's very easy to do the other has a cost. So, for example, if I'm interviewing candidates for a job, I will likely require what social scientists call costly symbols or com, uh, uh, difficult signals, sacrificial symbols, before I start to look for more common ones. So, I want to see that you have some pedigree, that you've got education. Education is something that can't be faked. Well, maybe some people do, but it is something that requires tremendous sacrifice. If your education on your resume is real, then I might be pleased with that. Or, or I may require you to have some job pedigree and experience with what you've done. That's costly before I start to regard how you're dressed or whether you're affable or not. These are cheap signals. How about this one? This one works better. Let's say that a woman is looking for a husband. Some of you have some experience with this. Some of you don't. If you don't, pay careful attention to what I'm about to say because there's a difference between a common signal and a costly symbol. A common signal might be something like saying, I love you. Now, don't get me wrong. You should say, I love you to your spouse every last day. That's something that's really important, but it means absolutely nothing unless it's backed up with something that requires a great deal more sacrifice. So that woman might say, I'm impressed with your common signal. I enjoy it and appreciate it. But at the end of the day, I'm looking for something much more costly. 
I'm looking for your fidelity and your dependability over time. Women, can you just say amen if I'm right? And if you're single, then keep this in mind. Cheap signals are just that. They're cheap. Virtue signaling is cheap. It costs us nothing. It's easy to do. So in Paul's day, those cheap signals of faith were things like circumcision or keeping the food laws or Sabbath keeping. All of these things in Paul's view were things that could be easily faked. They were things that could be easily offered. And the problem was that many of the Judaizers, the Jews who had become Christians but felt you still had to keep the Jewish laws, didn't understand the law of love that Jesus had offered. All of these people were saying, look, these things are the things that are really important. They're what we really want to see in people. And Paul said, no. What we want to see is the fruit of the Spirit. These other things, if you want to keep them, that's fine, but they're insignificant in comparison with Jesus' love, love. That's what he's trying to say in the book of Galatians. So circumcision, food keeping, Sabbath laws. Jesus spoke out against these things. In Matthew chapter 6, as Chris pointed out last week, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Now, would you read the rest of the sentence for me, please? To be seen by them. This is often misinterpreted. I hear people say I should be very private with my faith. No one should ever know anything about my faith in my office or in the government or wherever. And Jesus, after all, said I should be careful about practicing my righteousness in front of others. That is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, don't practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. The whole thing is about motivation because if the purpose is performing these things for the audience out there, for others to see, then you just botched the whole thing. You just lost the real fruit and supplanted it with fake fruit. Jesus nonetheless said, be really careful. Obviously, this is something that's easy to do. In Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul's talking about true faith. And he makes the point by speaking about the way Jews had practiced before Christians. So he says, no, look, a person is a Jew, a true Jew, a real Jew, a real chosen person of God, if they are one internally <clears throat> inside. Circumcision that is real fruit is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by some written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So here are some signals of our day in what I call Christian virtue signaling. My favorite one, and the one I left for Chris, the like and don't like, is social rage. And with social media now, it's just so obvious to me that people are going out of their way to virtue signal constantly, and it costs them nothing. Words are cheap, and especially throwing them into the inter internet, out into the, to, to the orbit, they, they, they cost you nothing. There's not even anybody present to hold you accountable for them. So raging at the machine, raging at the right thing. In the context of last week's marriage retreat, it's way easier to rage about the downfall of marriage in our country than it is to have a great marriage. That takes sacrifice and work and politicking. Please, please. It's way easier for you to throw a campaign sign in your yard to virtue signal to everyone around you 
than to do something that actually makes a significant difference in the world. I've got no problem with your sign. The question is, what are you really up to in real life? Politicking is, among all things I believe today, in modern America, the most common virtue signal among Christians that there is. People will say to me, unless you vote this way or unless you vote that way, they're two different people and they're talking about two different ways. You can't possibly be Christian. Really? Is that, is that right? Is that consistent with Scripture? I don't think so. And spare me your artificial rage when you've done absolutely nothing costly about it. Spare me the rage. If it makes you feel better, don't do it. That's the problem. We do these things because they're easy and they make us feel better about us. Or flag flying. Here's a good one. Listen, just because you put a rainbow flag in front of your church doesn't mean you stand for anything at all. That's cheap. It's virtue signaling. But neither does it mean anything that you chose the biggest possible American flag you could find and you flew in outside your church or inside your church. Because after all, we all know that Jesus wasn't American. Right, that's funny. Ridiculous. How is it that we can look at a place like Russia and see what Vladimir Putin is doing and it bothers us? But when we do it in our own culture, it's no problem. Or what Modi is doing with Hinduism in his country, that bothers us, but we miss it in our own culture. The reason we miss virtue signaling is because we ourselves are prone to it. It is because we ourselves want things that are easy, that can be controlled, that can be accomplished by our own effort, and things that people see and respond to immediately. Because the problem is growing good fruit takes a long time and a lot of effort. The work and the Spirit in us is slower. It takes time. When the Spirit is working and moving through us, it can't be mistaken. Faith, virtue signals are common or even cheap, not costly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about cheap grace. If you've ever read it, The Cost of Discipleship, it's one of the best discipleship books I think ever written. And the reason he was able to talk about cheap grace is that he'd come through Hitler's Germany, and he was among a very small band of people who took a stand against what they saw in Hitler, which was the nationalism of Germany. He saw the danger of it to the country, but it was a very small group of Christians called the Confessing Church. The Lutheran Church, the much larger church, were all in support of that. And do you know how he had to pay for it? Well, he's thrown into a concentration camp, and he died days before the liberation of Germany. He left safety teaching in the United States of America in New York City to go back because he knew he had to. And what he said is that cheap grace is not grace at all. Now, you've got to understand grace in this context because it is a free gift. But you've been bought with a price, and the price was high. It was the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion and the resurrection that make possible the faith we live today. But Paul wanted the Galatians to know, look, although it is a free gift, grace is costly to you. You've got to do the hard things like loving your neighbor as you love yourself. 
In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, by which he means to do anything that you get immediate pleasure or recognition from. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. Much harder, don't you think? For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's costly. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. And so I say, walk by the Spirit, and if you do, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Because once you've had real fruit, the fake thing just won't do. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do the very thing that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, Paul's saying here, look, <clears throat> it is not possible for you to do this of your own effort. You can't be this by yourself. <clears throat> what is required for you to be the person that God calls you to be is that His Spirit be in you, working and moving. The risen Lord be present in your life. Now, the acts of the flesh are, they're obvious. <clears throat> Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this in the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. There's a cost. Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Now let's break this down. Again, I pointed out that fruit is just one thing, and yet it is helpful for us to parse these words. But let's start with the word fruit itself, <clears throat> which is far more interesting in the Greek than it is in the English. So the fruit of the Spirit, fruit in this case, is the Greek word karpos, and karpos literally means plucked or harvested. So it's not actually the product like the apple, it's, it's the act of plucking or harvesting. Everybody in Jesus' day would have known that anything that was plucked or harvested would be taken from a living branch. And surely the Apostle Paul, as he was thinking about fruit, talked about the fruit of the Spirit as the produce of Christ within us. I'm positive that Paul was thinking about the teaching of Jesus, like that reflected in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. You know this Scripture. It's a lovely, wonderful, magnificent Scripture. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. 
He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, costly, sometimes painful, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear a lot of fruit. But apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. He doesn't say apart from me you can do some good things, but you can't get it completely right. He doesn't say apart from me you might do some things that make a difference, but eh, it won't be quite enough. He says that what you do in your own effort, separated from me, the vine, the life, it amounts to nothing. It's temporary and it's worthless. It's cheap and it's common. And here's the problem. Many of us would prefer things that we can do of our own effort, hoping that God might bless them. Paul continues, the fruit of the Spirit is love, agape, which Chris did such a beautiful job dealing with last week, and then joy and peace. I'm going to deal with the rest of these in pairs or in couplets because as I've been reading this passage, it occurs to me that they're presented in complementary forms. If love is the root of it all, then from that point forward, the ones that are presented seem to come together, like it's one kind of producing the other or one being conjoined to the other. And that's certainly the case for me with joy and peace. In the Greek, the word that is translated joy is kara. Can you say that? Kara. Now, you just said a mouthful way more than you think you did, because another form of the same word, and I mean only barely modified from this word, means grace. And when you say thanksgiving, it is a translation, many of you will remember, of the word eukarasteo, and kara, or grace, is right in the middle of it all. So, when we talk about joy, what we're talking about is God's grace activated in Christ followers, effervescent within us, moving within us in a way that is almost impossible to describe. Joy is that thing that exists and is going upward when everything around us seems to be going downward. Joy is that thing that we still have when we're in the deepest grief processes of our lives, when we can't afford to live and don't know what we'll do the next day when we lose our jobs, when relationships are torn asunder, when people disappoint us, when our children are in a bad place, no matter what happens in our life, we still have joy. Now, don't get me wrong. We also have that joy when we're at the top of our game. So, sometimes we're up and sometimes we're down. But joy is always present. Biblically speaking, joy is internal contentment from the eternal love relationship that we have with God. It's internal contentment from the eternal love relationship we have with God. Sometimes it's all that holds us together. Now, if I asked you what is the fake fruit that we like to replace for joy, I really think this one's kind of easy, like obvious. So, I'm curious as to whether it's that obvious. 
If I were to ask you, holler it out, what is the fake fruit, what would you say? It's, you could preach this. A, a child could preach this. <laughs> so easy. Happiness is what we substitute. And happiness is temporary satisfaction with external circumstances. It is completely dependent on external circumstances. It's entirely personal and it's entirely subjective. It's whatever I decide it is, whatever I think I need in order to be happy. And what I notice today is that way more Christians that I know seem to be trying to prove they're happy than to demonstrate true joy. In fact, people go so far out of that way to do this. I wonder if I'm the only one, so I'm going to ask you if you'll tell me. Do you know the person who tries to present themselves as happy all the time? Every, this is easy to do on social media because you can hide everything that's not good. So the person that everything they post is just ultimately positive about them points right back at them. See how happy I am? My children, see how perfect they are? My, my life, see how good it is? See how much better I have it than all the rest of you, even the food on my plate? Snap, snap, Instagram. See how much better my meal is than the one you're eating right now? Sucks to be you. That's the kind of that's the kind of thing I see. Now, just raise your hand if you see it. Don't look at the person who does it. Don't do it. Judge not that you be not judged. We all want to make our lives appear better than those around us because it makes us feel better about us. But it's worthless. It's fake fruit. It's not real joy. It has no eternal significance or meaning. And in fact, it is so willy-nilly and so artificial that it disappears as fast as it arrives. But what happens, I find, is that many followers of Jesus I know seem to believe that God should constantly give them the external circumstances that will make them happy. So they spend their time praying about those external circumstances. And when things aren't like they think they should be, and you fill in the blank here, I want to get married. God should give me that. I want a child. God should give me that. I want a house. God should give me that. I want a vacation. God should give me that. I want a vacation property. God should give me that. I want a boat. God should give me that. I want a yacht because it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger because it's subjective and you get used to what you have. And before long, it's, it's just life. Many, many followers of Jesus seem to believe that God should give them the external circumstances they desire. And as a result of that, what happens is that that fake fruit rots, if that's possible. And the way that it rots, the way it becomes ugly is because before long, they're trying to control their own external circumstances and everyone else's in order to manipulate the world to give, it what they, to give them what they think they deserve. Happiness is fake fruit. Now, would you just say that with me so you would hear yourself? Just say, happiness is, it's fake fruit. It's not the real deal. Sometimes things make us sad. Sometimes things are hard. Often things happen we can't control. Sometimes choices we make are terrible choices and they get us in bad places. All these things happen in our lives. People disappoint us. We disappoint ourselves. That's life. 
But joy remains whether we're happy or we're sad. It is the even keel of faith in Jesus Christ, and it holds us together. Now, speaking of holding us together, I think the product of joy is peace. Once I decide, look, I'm okay, I'm content in all circumstances, is what Paul said. I've learned to be content in every circumstance. Once I decide I'm okay, everything's all right, God's taking care of me, no matter what happens. Once I decide that, the result of that is an inner sense of peace. And peace, which is another word that Paul uses to describe the joy, or rather the fruit of the Spirit, is the Greek word irene, which means all parts join together. All parts join together. It's possible that Paul was thinking about the word shalom here, which I've talked about many times because Paul, you remember, his native language was Hebrew, but he had long since learned the lingua franca of Greek and spoke it when he was preaching to the Gentiles. Paul was fluent in both languages. And so, Paul might have also been thinking about shalom, but the word shalom means exactly the same thing as irene. It actually means wholeness or completeness. Paul's probably thinking about both. So, peace is that inner wholeness, even when there is outer fragmentation. Peace is that sense that it's all going to be eternally okay, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose in Paul's words in Romans. Peace is that sense that no matter how things come unglued around me, and this is a broken, fragmented world, so they're constantly going to come unglued around me. No matter how much that happens, there is an inner togetherness because I am glued together and bound together by the very love of Jesus Christ. And peace, my friends, it cannot be faked. But what do we choose as the fake fruit for peace? This is a little harder, but I want you to think about it with me. I think it's safety. Safety. I know this is true every time that someone comes to me and is disturbed by something that is happening right around us and wants me to preach about it. Some group that has interrupted their preferred environment, that is not acting the way that they think they should, even if those persons are speaking up for their own justice or whatever, and they say, you ought to do something about that, as though preaching from the pulpit about it would change anything since those persons are probably not even in the room. But they're unconcerned with the lack of peace that people have in other places. They're not concerned at all about the situation in Haiti or about the persecution Christians and Muslims are experiencing in India or about the persecution Christians are experiencing in China. They're not concerned with that at all, and they're not the least bit worried about war somewhere else. As long as it doesn't come to our backyard, in fact, we're willing to do whatever we can to make it happen over there somewhere else. And whenever we start talking like that, it is a sign we're not talking about peace as the Bible mentions it. We're talking about safety and our desire that our external environment not interrupt us in any way, shape, or form, not be fragmented. That's impossible. It's just not possible. The world is fragmented. It's not newly fragmented. It's the same as it has been since the fall. This thing just keeps coming back in another form over and over and over again. But 
but people want safety and spend a lot of time believing that God should give it, give it to them. This is what they should have. Whoever told you that following Jesus would make you safe? In fact, my dear friends, did Jesus not tell us precisely the opposite? Did he say, in this world you will know trouble because the world does not understand you? Did he not say when they persecute you, not to worry, they persecuted me first? Did he not tell us that we would not have safety in this world? And, and by the way, tell me who had this safety. Did the apostles have it? One took his own life, so we can't, we can't speak too much about that one. And, and one was eternally separated from everybody he loved on a little island called Patmos. That was John. But the other ten, every last one of them was martyred for the faith. Peter was upside down crucified at his own request. Do not crucify me right side up. I'm not worthy. He's crucified upside down. Did Paul know this piece? The number of times he was thrown in jail, persecuted, ultimately his life was taken from him. He became a martyr for the faith. Did Stephen know this piece? This safety? If that's what peace is? This kind of peace that we talk about that's fake fruit? Safety? Is that what happened to him? What about John the Baptist? Beheaded. His head lopped off. Is that safety? Did the early church know this kind of safety? Because they were such loyal followers of God, they were persecuted at the hands of, of, of terrible emperors. In fact, has anyone that has been faithful really known safety? No, Jesus told us, if you're going to follow me, it will be costly. Take up your cross daily because this won't be easy. It's quite possible that being persecuted and unsafe is one of the clearest indicators that we really know the power of Jesus Christ. More Christians and more persons of other faiths, for that matter, are being persecuted in the world today than at any other time in human history. In fact, some scholars say more may be persecuted right now today than if you, if you count them all up since the beginning of Christianity. No. Don't trouble me with this fake fruit. <clears throat> it's not real. Say it with me. Safety is fake fruit. Peace is what you have when the world's not safe. Peace is what you have when it's all fragmented, when it's all being blown to bits. Peace is what you have when people's behavior makes no sense. Peace is that internal sense that can only be evidence of the power of the Spirit moving in you. Look how Paul often holds these together. <clears throat> in Romans 15, 13, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all, what? Joy and peace as you trust Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why do we have hope in a hopeless world? Because we have the joy and peace that is the fruit of the Spirit. In John 15, 8 through 11, Jesus said, this is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. <clears throat> As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. I've told you this so that whose joy? Jesus' joy 
my joy, the joy of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may then be whole or complete. In Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 9, Paul writes, have joy in the Lord always. Again, I'll say have joy. Let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with Eucharisteo, thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all human understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, the world doesn't even understand this peace. And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you've learned from me or received from me or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, let me be clear. You're not looking for the peace of God. You're looking for a relationship with the God of peace. And when that Spirit is in your life, it is His peace that exudes every situation and cannot be taken away. In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, because they're the ones that will be called the children of God. Would you please note that Jesus did not say, blessed are the peace fakers or the peace takers. What does it mean, my friends, to be a peacemaker today? In a world that seems to honor us when we create enmity with others, when we slam other people and take issue with every little, when we're so touchy and defensive that any little thing wounds us and we can't just wave and say, it's okay. I live in a state of forgiveness and I, it's all right. What does it mean to be a peacemaker in our time, in our day? John 15, 8, my translation of the Greek, J-E-B version. This is to my Father's beauty. That word glory, remember? This is to my Father's beauty, that you people be fruity, proving that you are my followers. It's not just that you're working hard to have one or two of these qualities, or you're working to grow in one or two of these qualities. Is that you are getting out of your own way and out of the Spirit's way, and you're saying, Lord, have your way inside of me. Work in and through me. Make your stuff happen, because anything I produce by myself, it goes bad. It's temporary. It's dying. But whatever you do in me is true and real and eternal and permanent. Anything born of your love, Father, is good, so work your way through me and in me, and I will get out of the way. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace. 
Have you ever heard that expression? I bet you have. Fake it till you can make it. How many of you have heard that before? You know, really isn't terrible advice in some ways. I mean, you go to a counselor and they say, look, if you can't get it right right now, just fake it till you can make it. And, you know, you're, you're, eventually your feelings will catch up with your actions. It's not terrible advice. When it comes to living life, sometimes it's best to fake it. Like, I'll just tell you, here's the truth. If you can't be nice to me of your own volition, just fake it. I'm fine with that. Right? Just, just fake kindness. I'm good. Because ugliness doesn't please me. But when it comes to serving God, this doesn't work. You can't fake faith. You cannot fake true belief in the one true living God. You cannot fake being submitted to the Holy Spirit. You can't fake the crucifixion of the, fre- of the, pr- of, of the flesh. You cannot fake taking up your cross and following Jesus. Fake fruit looks fake, feels fake, and produces fake over time. It may get you a quick pop, but after a while it just gets old. I'm tired of fake fruit. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it in my own life, and I'm sick of it in the lives of other people. I'm sick of seeing it. I've gotten to the point I can smell fake fruit even though it doesn't have an odor. I can smell it a hundred miles away. Virtue signaling now, whenever I see it, just goes, good gosh. The hypocrisy, whitewashed on the outside, but rotting on the inside like a tomb. This is what Jesus said about the Pharisees, who were all about fake fruit. Now, fake it till you make it won't work when it comes to following Jesus, because when you fake it, You don't allow the Spirit to make it. And that's the key with the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of the spiritual person. It's not the fruit of the Christian. It's not the fruit of of a particular class. It's not your fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit born in and through you. And when we get out of the Spirit's way, great things happen. So I just ask you, can you submit? The first battle of every day is to whom you will submit. That's the first battle of every day. Can you submit your life to to Jesus? Can you submit your life to the work of the Spirit? Can you say, Lord, whatever you do through me is fine, even if I'm not safe and if I'm not happy right now? Nonetheless, whatever you do is what is best for me eternally. Can you submit your marriage? Can you submit your parenting? Can you submit... yourself as a laborer or a worker? Can you submit your church? Can you submit your neighborhood? Can you submit your government? Can you submit your country? None of these things, none of these things have any lasting value, but whatever the Spirit does through you in these spheres is forever, is eternal. Can we get out of the Spirit's way and let great things happen. Because when the Spirit moves, great things always happen. They always do. Just remember as we walk through this series that looking good is just not good enough. I don't care how good you look good. Fake fruit is still fake. It's not real. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace.
So, Father, our desire is to be fully and completely submitted to You and that Your Spirit would move in and through us in such a way that what You produce in our lives has lasting value and can never be taken away. Today, I pray that You would give to these my beloved brothers and sisters and anyone else hearing me, even if they're calling and asking for it for the very first time, Father, give them joy. In the most difficult moments of their lives, give them joy. In the highs and the lows, give them joy. And Father, bless them with peace that passes all understanding, that they are whole and knit together by Your love inside, even when the world around them is coming unglued, is fragmented and broken. Lord, all of these things are born of Your love. We love You, and we thank You for loving us because Your love is a gift of grace, undeserved, freely given, freely received. Lord, in our freedom, help us to choose Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, together we are all new, all in, and all out. So you go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to ColumbiaBaptist.org. That's ColumbiaBaptist.org.